So today we're going to begin the second epistle, and epistle means letter, from Paul the Apostle to the church at Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, an area of northern Greece, where there were about 200,000 people living in that area, in that city, in that day, in the first century. And so uh, as Paul and his companions had been traveling across, coming from the east, traveling westward, they get to Thessalonica, and we're told in Acts chapter 17 that Paul was used of the Lord to found the Thessalonian church. He was on his second missionary journey. He and a, a guy by the name of Timothy and another man by the name of Silas were traveling together, but it appears that it was Silas and Paul uh, who were there when this church was established. Timothy is around. We know that he's with them, but he's conspicuously absent at this point. And we discover why as we go along. We also read in Acts 17 that it was Paul's habit to first, when he showed up in the city, he would first go to the synagogue in that city. And there he had done so at Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, we're told, three weeks. So we're told also in Acts 17 that, that while most of them didn't, some of the Jews committed to the Lord while he was there at the Sabbath giving God's word and sharing the gospel with these people. We also see that a great multitude of Gentiles, along with not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas there. So Thessalonica is largely a majority Gentile city, pagan city, a small uh, group of Jews there, and, and as Paul would go to the Jew first and then to the Greek, as we see his pattern throughout the New Testament, he would go there first, even though that was the minority. But we also see that very quickly the minority stirs up trouble. Evidently, the Jews weren't happy about all of that, that Paul was doing there. They stir up trouble, and as a result, Paul and Silas literally had to get out of town. They were wanted men. Uh, we know that when the, the city officials invaded uh, uh, the house of a guy by the name of Jason, they were looking for Paul. They didn't find him there. But Jason ends up having to post bail when they haul him downtown. And so we can assume that there was a warrant out for their arrest, for Paul's and Silas's arrest here at this point. So because it was no longer safe for Paul and Silas to go back to Thessalonica, Paul sends Timothy at this point, And I believe that that's why he's silent up until now, because he wasn't identified with these guys that were stirring up the trouble, according to the Jews. And so he sends Timothy back uh, in his place to care for, to nurture the Thessalonian church, this newly birthed church. Now, a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit was going on. Uh, we know that from First Thessalonians that, that these people, that the gospel exploded across the whole region of Macedonia. They were going out all over the region, and they were establishing new fellowships, and, and there was this great work of God that started in just three weeks. Miraculous outpouring of the Spirit there. Uh, so we also learned, too, uh, in First Thessalonians, that after about a year had passed by, that Paul, uh, now living in Corinth, which was to the south and a little bit to the west, uh, that he was in the dark. He had no idea. He had to leave so quickly. He sent Timothy Silas, they stayed there, and they did the work in Thessalonica. But Paul, a year's gone by, he's with Priscilla and Aquila making tents and sharing the gospel in Corinth now, but he has no idea. 
And he's really restless about what has happened with these Thessalonian Christians. What's gone on with them since I had to leave? So uh, one of the things that's true at that point, Timothy and Silas, they traveled back to Corinth. And now uh, they begin to reveal to Paul the things that were going on with that church. Uh, when he brought word back to Paul, the result of that was Paul wrote the first letter to the Thessalonians. He said, I tried to get back to you in person, couldn't do it. Satan hindered me, so I had to write. So unfortunately, when Paul and Silas had left, what they came to find out from Timothy was that the church had fallen under severe persecution. It was heavy. Uh, many began to come under fire for their faith. So, uh, thinking about and looking at the dark pagan world of Thessalonica, uh, talk about a couple of things here. One of the pagan practices of that day, what they had begun to do was to offer a cask of wine on the altar of one of these so-called deities, these phony gods, either to Venus or to Caesar, whatever it was. And then they would take that wine and go down to the marketplace and they would sprinkle this wine that had been offered to this essentially demonic deity, and they would sprinkle everything, food or produce, whatever it was, they would sprinkle it on the stuff in the marketplace. So the Christians then, the Thessalonian Christians, wanting to be a witness, they stopped buying the goods at the marketplace that had been sprinkled with this wine. What that did was it exposed them to the people that were over that, and that sparked persecution among them. Uh, they were standing against the pagan practices that they had once been a part of. They were living separately. We talked about that at length in First Thessalonians. There was a guy in the first century, he was a Roman official and also a writer, um, a guy by the name of Pliny the Elder. And he wrote this. He says, it was in Thessalonica that the first Gentiles were killed in the Roman Empire. A local, the local Roman governor in that part of the country said that every Christian had to bow before the statue of Augustus Caesar. Now, if you're thinking, well, this is way after Caesar Augustus, you're right. That doesn't mean, he's not talking about Caesar Augustus, he's talking about Augustus Caesar. That was a title given to Caesar as the August one. In other words, it meant your majesty. So if, if that was the case, there, there were many Caesars in the Roman Empire in succession, and so whoever was the Caesar at that time was considered the august one, and they would deify themselves and, and demand worship as gods. That's why they're taking this wine and they're sacrificing it, or, or they're doing this whole thing with the wine and then taking it sprinkling to the marketplace. So as the Caesar had been deified, statues of him would be showing up all over the place. They were erected everywhere, and Christians who didn't obey the edict were persecuted. As a result of those persecutions, many were crucified. That was the Roman custom of execution in that day. Crucifixion, it was a, it was a thing with them, as we know from the cross, but that wasn't just Jesus that was executed in that way. They did that regularly. Also, many, uh, uh, secular history tells us that many uh, of the Christians were being burned alive. Horrible persecution. The first great persecution of believers in the Gentile world began at Thessalonica. Bad stuff. So at the same time, now that was the persecution that was coming from outside the church. Now at the same time, uh, some false teachers had gotten together. They were circulating a letter in the church 
that was an intentional forgery. We'll talk about that more as we go along. So written by false teachers, the letter stated that the persecution that they were enduring was because they were already in the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is that time yet future when the wrath of God will be poured out on an unbelieving, Christ-rejecting world. So these guys are circulating this letter. They're saying, hey, this is from Paul. And, and they're trying to get people to go along with it, saying, no, 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 no. Paul, we've had it all wrong. It's already the day of the Lord. This persecution is because it's God's wrath being poured out. No, this persecution was at the hands of evil men. So Paul writes to correct that. Now understand we're talking about the believers in Thessalonica. They'd only been Christians for about a year. They're only a year old in the Lord. They are not, they are not what we would look at as mature believers. They don't have a lot of background in this walking with Jesus thing. And so that's part of why Paul is writing to them. And most believe that the second letter was written only three months after the first letter that Paul had written. Somehow, Paul had gotten word that the Thessalonian Christians' faith was under fire. As a result, he was inspired by the Lord to write another letter to them. This would also be the shortest of all of Paul's writings. He wrote uh, 13 books in the New Testament, uh, 14 if you count Hebrews, but just saying, <laughs> that's, a, that's a personal opinion. But this would be the shortest of all of them. It's only three chapters long. That's because Paul wants to address these Thessalonian Christians because their faith was under fire. Uh, he wants to address three specific things that were going on with this church. And I'll take a, a, give you a brief view of them. We'll look at them more in depth as we go. So first of all, they were under fire from outside the church because these spiritually young believers were facing terrible persecution and hardship. We'll see that God actually brings comfort to these people. And, and he also, by extension, brings comfort to us because he promises judgment, which will come upon the cruel, unbelieving world. And folks, there is comfort to be had there. Uh, you look at the things that are going on in our world and you've got to realize it will not always be like this. We have the benefit of seeing the end of the story and it doesn't go well for people who reject Christ. Secondly, they're under fire from within the church because of these false teachers circulating this letter. Uh, they claimed that, again, they claimed that it was written by Paul and they were trying to put forth this false doctrine about end times theology. As a result, the thriving church was now beginning to live with confusion and fear. Uh, and many, many of the believers in the church were, were being compromised because they were under such heavy persecution from outside and now inside the church. The third thing we'll look at, as we saw in First Thessalonians, it had come to Paul's attention that there were some in the church that were believing in the Lord's return. Now we look at the Lord's return and we still look at the Lord's return as being imminent, in other words, it will happen. It will, it's a certainty, it will happen. They were not looking at it as being imminent. They were looking at it as being immediate. And they were waiting for him to return then. As a result, these guys were becoming slackers. They were freeloading. They had stopped working and they were like, well, he's coming back, so what's the point? What they were doing in that was totally compromising their witness and they were putting a heavy burden on the people in the church that were working because these people were drawn together as a community. And so they were really, they were getting messed up by this false doctrine that was going around about the Lord's return. 
So it's in these three primary things that we're, we're going to look at uh, as we look at 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to look at how Paul deals with, brings inspired instruction with regard to each one of these as we dive into this, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. So all of that by way of introduction. Now let's dive into verse 1. He says in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So while Paul is the one that's writing this letter, he mentions the other two because they no doubt collaborated with him on it. I mean, he is going by the information that they're bringing from Thessalonica. We don't know, again, we don't know how he got this updated information, whether it was a courier or a letter or whatever, but he is still in Corinth with Silvanus and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is the Greek name for the Hebrew name Silas, all right? This is the same guy who had been a prominent member of the Jerusalem Council. Uh, back in the book of Acts, we see that problems had come up with the Gentiles. But they were some, some teachers came to Antioch in Syria where Paul's home church was. That was his home church. And they started spreading this false doctrine about the Gentiles. And so Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem and they went to the apostles there and said, hey, you know, we need to figure this out. The apostles wrote a letter and they sent it back with a couple of prominent members of the council. One of them was this guy named Silas. So Silas gets to Antioch with this letter and Paul's getting ready to go out on another missionary journey with the letter so he can say, look, this is what the guys in Jerusalem say about all this. And he and Barnabas, who had been with him on his first missionary journey, have a falling out. Now, <laughs> I'd love to rabbit trail on that of ways, but basically what happened was that on his first missionary journey, Barnabas was with Paul and they had Barnabas's nephew, a guy by the name of John Mark, that went with them. They got all the way across. They went through Cyprus and went up across the Mediterranean Sea, got to the southern coast of Asia. And John Mark said, see ya. I'm out of here. I'm going home. So he bailed out on that trip. Well, they get to going, talking about the second missionary journey. And Barnabas says, I know, let's take John Mark. And Paul said, absolutely not. It ain't going to happen. Not now, not ever. He was not happy about Barnabas' choice, wanting to have his nephew along when he had, in his mind, been unfaithful in the first journey. So what happened then, Silas was in Antioch, and he said, you know, I really don't feel like going back to Jerusalem. I think I'll stick around here. And then he finds out about this falling out with Paul and Barnabas, and, and so he tags on with Paul, and he ends up going in Barnabas's place. So that's Silas. That's how he comes about. And again, a prominent man, elder in the Jerusalem church, uh, worked right hand in hand with the apostles there, uh, somebody that was a real solid guy. So now when we get to Timothy, we're talking about him now. He was a, a resident of a city called Lystra. And Paul and Silas took off from Antioch. They're going across this region of Galatia. They pick up Timothy in Lystra, and he joins them there. Now, Timothy was, we're told that he was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother named Eunice. And from his youth, he'd been taught the scriptures by his mother, uh, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. We're told that in Paul's letters to Timothy. So Paul would later come to refer to Timothy in 1 Corinthians as my beloved and faithful son in the Lord. So Timothy is a solid guy. He, he would become sort of Paul's right-hand guy 
in many of his missionary endeavors, he would, he would be raised up as a pastor. Later in his life, he would pastor the church at Ephesus, he was likely the pastor there. When John the Apostle in his old age went to Ephesus and it wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and all that. So that's the background of these guys. So I want you to notice too here in verse 1, he says, to the church. I want to make a really important point here, guys, because to get this wrong, you end up out in la-la land in religion. And we're not about that. Epistles are written to the church. Epistles are not written from the church, okay? Understand that, a very important distinction. Nothing authoritative comes from the church. The church doesn't teach. The church is to be taught, all right? The point is this, the church is not the authority. God's word is the authority. And and you might be thinking, well, yeah, but I thought that you're like the pastor. Yeah, God raises up positional authority in the church, but that's not the authority that we base our lives on. Oh my goodness, no, don't even think about it. What we do is we look at, I'm a teacher in the church, but I'm not the church. I'm not the guy that's teaching you guys, telling you what to do. Whenever that takes place, if you end up in an organization that does that, run. (laughs) It is unhealthy. It's wrong. It's unscriptural. And there's no place for the church setting itself up in that position. It's an important distinction because when the church sets itself up in a hierarchical position over the people, it usurps the position that only Christ and his word rightfully have. Understand that. Very important. It's one of the reasons why Jesus, I believe in the book of Revelation, he says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, to be fair, there's some debate over what this means. There are different interpretations. But one of the one of the prominent interpretations of that comes from breaking this word down. We see the word nico, where we get the word nicotine, and what it means is to lord over, to conquer. Nicotine conquers the will. You get addicted. That's what that, that's how that works. All right. And so that's what that word means. Laetin, it simply means the people. It's where we get the word laity. All right. So to lord it over the people. And Jesus is saying, I hate it when the church lords it over the people. I do not want to see that. Peter in first Peter chapter five says, we are not called to lord it over you. Folks, the design for the church in God's eyes, it's an upside down pyramid. Uh, Jesus said to be greatest in the kingdom, you got to be servant of all. And, 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 and I'll tell you what, the leadership in a church isn't up here and, and, you know, looking down. No, the leadership in the church, if they understand New Testament theology, if they understand Christianity, leadership in the church is down here, going low, coming alongside and, and getting underneath people to elevate them, to, to be able to minister to them. That's God's design for the church. It is never authoritative in that sense. <laughs> Something I'd love to tell people too is I didn't write the paper. I'm just throwing it in your yard. And folks, that is so true. And it is so freeing for me. I don't, I don't have to worry. It's not my church. This is Jesus' church. This is God's church. And, and I'm an under shepherd and I love what I do. I love what God's called me to do. I also know the limits to the ministry that God's given me. And I don't ever want to be that guy. I, ever. Be that guy that lords it over the flock. That, that's like, hey, I, you know, I'm the boss and, and you better do what I say kind of a thing. There's no place for that in the kingdom of God. 
He says also to the Thessalonians here, he says, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, the church, are in the Father in Christ. That's our position. That's our status as believers. Our lives are securely in him. So when we talk about I am in Christ, that's what's being referred to there. And now, the other thing about this, he gives equal weight uh, to both the Father and the Son in the original language. Uh, if you look, they are, there's, no, there's no dominant, one is not dominating the other. Interestingly, no one appeared to have a beef with the Father and the Son being co-equal in the first century. Paul doesn't say, okay, well, let me explain that to you. No, it's assumed. They are equal. And I'll tell you what, I grew up in a false religion where they weren't equal. And it was a false religion that was very hierarchical in nature. And I, I praise God that I didn't stay trapped in that whole thing. It was a religious system that was terrible. Once I began to read God's word, I began to study and to begin to understand the way that things work in the kingdom. It is not that way. So as we look at this, the father had a plan. The son carried it out. That's simple, pretty simple. So taking a broader look at the Trinity here, the father willed it, the son accomplished it, and it is the spirit of God who takes it and applies it to our lives. And that's where we get understanding as to the things of the kingdom of God. Verse 2, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Charis, Greek, and shalom, Hebrew, Aramaic. Grace and peace. Now, Paul starts every one of his letters the same way. And he opens it, and his greetings are always grace and peace to you. Folks, all of the needs of humanity are wrapped up in these two words. They are not just an empty salutation. Grace, the unmerited favor of God, the forgiveness through which, through the blood of Christ on the cross that we could never earn, never deserve, and the peace that comes from understanding that. It's always grace first and then peace because grace is what produces the peace. It's the only place where human beings finally find rest in their souls. Uh, we try with money, relationships, drugs, sexual things, power, fame, all of it. Try, try, try. Empty, empty, empty. Nothing will satisfy but the grace of God. It's because we have that innate sense of emptiness that human beings are constantly trying to fill their lives with a thousand things. Paul says, no, it's grace. It's only in receiving God's grace that man discovers what he or she have been longing for, trying to find in their whole life peace, real, genuine rest for the soul. Peace is that precious sense of inner tranquility and well-being that comes as a result of being reconciled to God through Christ. So grace and peace, not an empty salutation, but packed with meaning and depth and action on God's behalf, which asks nothing of us but a simple response. So after giving his opening salutations in verses 3 and 4, Paul begins by commending the Thessalonians for their posture in the midst of suffering and persecution. So in verse 3 we read, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting 
because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. So his wording here in verse 3 is really strong. The word bound here means indebted. What he's saying is he's seeing he has a sense of, of personal obligation to be constantly thanking God concerning them. Now, this sense of obligation was a result of seeing that their faith was growing. The outworking of that faith was a sacrificial love. The word love here is the word agape, and that's a sacrificial, others-centered love. Not a selfish love at all. It was a love that each of them had for one another in the midst of their persecutions, tribulations, and things that they were enduring. Now, he'd already written a very warm letter in his first writing, uh, having he had high praise for this. He called them a model church, the Thessalonian church. He said, you guys are a model church. Uh, and now it's likely in the subsequent communication, again, we don't know how that came about, whether it was through the written word or somebody coming or whatever, but they probably, they heard about this praise and they probably responded by looking at their lack, saying, you know, we're not getting all this right. I mean, we have real problems here, Paul. Claim that they weren't worthy of such praise, but Paul is resolute. He stands strongly in maintaining that his words had not been too strong He speaks highly of their faith and the love that they have for one another. Folks, if there's anything I want our church to be known by, it's that that we are walking in faith and we are loving one another. And I am blessed that that is the the mark of this fellowship. Um, he He goes further. He says it's fitting. It's the right thing to do. So I want you to imagine with me that you're a young believer. (laughs) After giving your life to, to Christ, your life is turned upside down. That's what happened in Thessalonica. These guys are bipping along, doing what they always did, pagan worship and all that. And then they give their life to Christ. And and now that there's a line, now they want to live differently. And, And as a result of that, their life is just flipped up on its edge, going through horrible persecution. Through it all, you're maintaining your faith in God. And then you receive this letter from Pastor Paul. Now, yeah, he's the great apostle Paul. I understand that. But you gotta understand that Paul had a pastor's heart. He had a shepherd's heart. And so as, when he's writing these letters to these people, he's not Paul the evangelist here. He's already done that. The church is going. It's, it's a year old now. He's writing back to them because he has a shepherd's heart and he wants them to understand some things that are in his heart towards them. So, he writes this letter, you get this, this letter back from the pastor Paul, and it, it's, it, it's amazing to me that these people were responsive to him to begin with, because there were so many things that were coming against this church, and yet they're hanging tough. They're, they're doing the right thing. So he says, we're bound to always give thanks to God for you, and, and we're under obligation to do that, then he gives, he gives them a couple of reasons why he's saying that. It's because, first of all, your faith is growing. And then he says it's not just that it's growing, but your faith is growing exceedingly. He says your faith is going beyond that which I expected. Remember, their faith was, again, being really stretched, very much tested. They're growing more than he would have expected from Paul's perspective. In other words, they're learning how to trust God in all things. And isn't that, folks, one of the most important lessons that we learn? To trust God in all things. It's a lesson that God has had to repeat in my life over and over 
and over again to trust him, no matter what the circumstance. It's a lesson for all of us. It's also a wonderful aspect of our relationship with the Lord that he allows us to go through highs and lows and all kinds of experiences. And all the while, he's teaching us the most important lesson of putting our complete trust in him. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know the wounds. I don't know the trials. I don't know how you're being stretched. But I do know this. He is always calling us deeper. He is always calling us to trust. So Paul's telling them that he sees their faith growing, their love abounding. That means that their love was obviously increasing, but it also means that their love was genuine. They really did love each other. They really cared for one another. Word came back to Paul as that came back to him. His response was, I want to strongly affirm you in these things. In other words, Paul, uh, for him, this was a model church. Now, it was a model church not because they had all their ducks in a row. No, it was because they were learning to trust God and to hang together when life got messy. And folks, sometimes life gets messy, doesn't it? You know, we live in a state of relative peace now. And I look at what's going on out in the world, and I look at the the mounting pressure against the church, the true church, and it wouldn't take much for it to get really messy. Learning to trust God now, I'll tell you what, it's it's critical that we understand that. I I think about Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5. He says, you know, he, he was rebuking Israel. He said, you know what? How if you can't run with the footmen, how are you going to run when the horses come? I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. He says, if you lie down in a land of peace, what are you going to do when the real battle starts? That's a word for the church today. Uh, it, it, this world is, I get it, spinning out of control. It's all by God's plan. I have great comfort in that. But we need to be re- we need to be prepared. The church in the West has become very soft. I look at what's going on in different parts of the planet with the church, the true church, the persecution that's happening today. People getting out of bed this morning, wondering if their life or their loved one's lives are going to be on the line today. We've got to understand, folks, I'm blessed that we live in the country we're in, and I don't feel guilty about that or any of that stuff. But we also have to know that life gets messy. And we're either going to be ready for that or we're not. Part of what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, you're a model church because you're getting it. You're doing the right thing because your life's got messy. You're holding together. You're coming together. You're loving each other. You're doing the work. You're hanging in there with Christ. That's what a church family should look like. We live in relative peace, but that is a tenuous peace. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another in the midst of tough stuff. And and folks, I will also add, some of us are more lovable than others, myself included. (laughs) And he says, you know what? Put that aside. Love one another. The The Thessalonians, they certainly weren't free from trials, but they're growing in their faith, abounding in their love towards one another, because especially because their faith was under fire. And I'll tell you what, One of the times when the church grows, when the church strengthens, is when faith is under fire. And that is, you see that throughout church history. 
I see it today. You see it here in the first century with this church. Great encouragement comes from understanding that our peace, our safety, our comfort at any particular time is not dependent on the world around us. It's dependent upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endured. So this would have been very encouraging to other churches as they learned uh, that what the people in Thessalonica were going through. And Paul says, look, we're bragging on you, Thessalonians. And he says, your patience, all your persecutions, tribulations, the things you're enduring, we're bragging on you because you're holding together in the midst of all that. Now, the word patience here can also mean perseverance. That's how it's rendered. That's how it translates. They're learning to persevere. Literally, this word means to bear up under a heavy load. And they had one. There's a heavy load on you, but you're persevering. You're bearing up physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I'll guarantee you that there are places in our lives that God is allowing pressure to come to bear in our lives that we bear up and that we understand our place in the big scheme of things. God was using suffering in these people's lives to produce patience, to teach perseverance in them through times of trial. Folks, he still does. Every one of us. Uh, The Bible says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, not might, will suffer persecution. I remember one time, my older brother, right after I came to the Lord, he yelled at me. And I walked away, I was all wounded and stuff. He might be yelled at me, I'm being persecuted. And that wasn't persecution. That was my brother being a pill. (laughs) But anyway, in Romans chapter 5, Paul elaborates on this principle. He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Tribulation means trouble. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. That's what Paul's talking about here. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. What is the great hope that we have? That Jesus is going to take us all out of here at one point. Whether, whether it's head first or feet first, folks, this ain't, this ain't real life. I mean, I think about, sometimes they use the analogy of a fishbowl. It's like if you had a goldfish bowl and you put it in the center of a room, you got a goldfish in there, and he looks out, it's kind of, you know, warped and stuff. I mean, he has this dim view of the room around him. We're like the goldfish. The real world is out there. The real world is the kingdom of God. And as we go through this place and we look forward to that, that's our hope. That's why it's our blessed hope. Because when we graduate from this, it's eternity in the presence of God. Hallelujah. Paul says here, he says, in all your tribulations... They're under attack from without. They're under attack from within. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus warns uh, about this. He warns his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. In in Matthew 5.10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, he sharpens it up. Now he says, not blessed are those. Now in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice, be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the Thessalonians, they're under enormous stress, heavy fire, trials, sufferings, difficulties, enduring all of that. It was was everywhere in their lives. 
Most of it was taking place because they had stood up for the Lord Jesus. They were standing firm in him. So we're going to stop there in verse 4. We'll pick up in verse 5 next week. I remember I was talking with uh, Jennifer. She was getting ready to do the bulletin artwork. And um, uh, she's homesick. And so and she was waiting for me to figure out where I was going to stop. And I told her initially, I said, yeah, I'm going to go through the first 10 verses of chapter 1. <laughs> and, and she said, I was reading ahead, Pastor John. And it looks like I, I'd be surprised you get through four verses. I wrote her last night when I gave her the stuff. I said, I think you're a prophetess <laughs> because I got four verses. <laughs> so anyway, we'll pick up in verse five next week. But as we wrap up, I want to take a look at a few things. First is this it's a question. Is your faith under fire? Now, it might not be anywhere near the degree the Thessalonians were experiencing. But there are times, aren't there? where circumstances come to bear in our lives, which range from mildly unpleasant to extreme. My pastor used to tell me, uh, Pastor Bob, you'll hear me talk about him from time to time, a very important man in my life and got used profoundly for 30 years. He said, John, you don't get to choose what's a trial for somebody else. I said, what do you mean, Bobby? And he'd say, well, for one person, a trial is a broken fingernail. For the next person, it might be the loss of someone they love. You don't get to choose. You just love them and you serve them. and You come alongside and you minister God's love to them. And as some of the best advice I ever got. Yeah, I don't know what you're going through. Maybe it's a broken fingernail. Maybe somebody close to you has passed. I don't know. But I do know this. I want to encourage you. You might not understand God's part in the thing that you're dealing with. You might not understand it on this side of heaven. However, when I'm faced with things that I don't understand about God, what he's doing in my life, I go with what I do understand. It's a good practice to have. God, I don't understand why it's so hard. I don't understand why it hurts so much. I don't understand why there's not more. Whatever that thing is, I don't understand. But what I do understand is he loves me. He loves me with a a love that I won't fully understand this side of heaven. I understand that he's working for my best, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, that he's working for my best. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans eight twenty nine tells us what that purpose is, doesn't it? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He is forming Christ in us. And sometimes that requires pressure. He's merciful. He's kind, he's gracious, he's good. Go with what you do understand about God. When you don't understand what's going on, go with what you do. Understand that he is a loving king. Understand that he loves you with the depth of love that that you won't experience fully until you're there. But on this side of heaven, go with what you know. In my own life, many, many times over the years, he's brought me to places where He's simply asked the question of me and he's come to me, John, are you, are you going to trust me even when? Are you going to trust me even if? And you can fill in the blank, folks. I know what those things are in my life. God, I don't understand why it's so hard. I don't understand why that person died. I don't understand what I have. How can I get out of this mess that I'm in? I don't understand why I have such a hard time with that relationship. On and on it goes. Go with what you do understand. Loving, 
merciful, compassionate, kind, gracious, has your best interest at heart all the time. Second thing I want to look at here as we close is what's the source? First Peter chapter three, verse 17, Peter says, for it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. <laughs> I give a hearty amen to that. Been on both sides of that a bunch of times. Folks, there's times in each of our lives where life is difficult because we're doing what's right. That's because the right thing to do is not always the easy thing. Sometimes it's really hard to do the right thing. But the right thing to do, and it's one of the models of my life, the right thing to do is always the right thing to do. You don't question it. You don't sit there and examine it. You just say, okay, that's the right thing to do. That's what we're going to do. There are also times in each of our lives where we suffer for doing what's wrong. Let's face it. I have come to understand experientially that God will shout as loudly into my life as he needs to shout to get my attention. And he does. And he will. Not because he's mad at me. If you are a child of the king, you got to get through your head. He's not mad at you. That was rolled away at the cross. But he loves you. He will work in your life. He will allow things to come to bear. He'll allow pressure to come. He'll allow you to come to a point where you've got to trust him even if. He'll allow you to come to a point where the pressure is there and you have to say, Lord, I don't just want you. I need you. I need you in this moment. If I don't, if you don't help me to stand, I'm going to fall. That's the God that we know, that we love, that we serve. For someone that doesn't belong to Christ, at least not yet, (laughs) there are both temporal and eternal consequences to sin. Suffering is part of it. Now, next week we'll look at the eternal consequences uh, to to that, all of that, uh, to suffering. Next week, when we look at, we're going to begin to look at the wrath of God. We're going to begin to look at perfect anger and and how God uses that to assure the Thessalonians, look, it ain't going to always be this way. For those who do belong to him, while the eternal consequences have been rolled away through the work of the cross, Temporal consequences remain, don't they? Sometimes we suffer for doing what's right. At other times we suffer for doing what's wrong. Now, to be honest, that doesn't sound real churchy, does it? But I'll tell you what, it's true. It's true in all of our lives. Every one of us is subject to the chastising hand of God. Hebrews chapter 11 says, The Lord chastens those whom he loves. He goes on to say, the writer goes on to say there that if you're not chastened by God, if you're not disciplined, if you're not corrected by God, there's a good chance you don't belong to him. The Lord loves those whom he chastens. It's all part of the process that he initiates in the hearts of his people and he, as he, he cleanses us from the inside out. Further about that, don't despise that. And that's not my opinion. That's what he says in Hebrews 11. Don't despise the chastising hand of the Lord. Embrace it. He brings correction to accomplish his purposes. He brings pressure to bear in our lives to conform us. He brings us to places where we have no choice but to endure. But we don't have to endure it alone, folks. He's a loving king. He's a loving father. And he's there to help us to bear up in tough circumstances. Finally, the last thing here is trust is the key. Again, I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. Perhaps it's an issue of health. 
finances, a relationship is broken. I don't know the pressures in your life. I know the pressures in mine. But I do know this. He's trustworthy. He's always working ahead of us. He's always drawing us deeper. And the Bible tells us that if we draw near unto God, that he will draw near unto us. That's a promise. It's not a maybe. So if God by his spirit is beckoning you this morning, I want to encourage you. Bring him into the equation. Draw near. Let him in. Allow him to minister his healing touch. And whatever that thing is, allow him to give you the power to bear up in tough circumstances. Allow him to bring the comfort that only he can bring into that situation, into that trial, into that pressure, into that persecution, into that broken relationship, into that financial loss, whatever it is. These are principles that God's word puts forth that are sturdy and reliable and trustworthy, and we can bank on them. The world doesn't offer any of this. This is stuff for kingdom kids. This is stuff for children of the king. Won't you lean into that? Ah. Finally, if you don't know Christ, and you sense a pull on your heart this morning, I can't encourage you enough. Give your life to Christ. Maybe it's here in this room. Maybe it's people watching this online. It's a simple prayer. Lord, I, I, I am tired of trying to live my life for myself. I lay my life down. I ask you to come in. I trust that the work you did on that cross was for me personally. And now give me your life. Give me hope that I've never had before. I invite you in. Set up housekeeping in my heart. I give you the reins. That's what that prayer looks like. If you don't know him, pray it today. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Let's pray. Father, as we... uh, begin this wonderful letter and all the hard-hitting things that are in it as well. Lord, we're reminded of your majesty in our lives. We're reminded of your greatness. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's facing something that perhaps it doesn't seem like there's a way out. It doesn't seem like there's any way to escape the pressure of that thing. And I pray, Father, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak to them that you would woo them, that you would draw them, that they would find a place of surrender in you that's not giving up, but truly just surrendering that thing to you, trusting that you know what's best. And as they bear up under that pressure, Lord, that you would give them the strength to do so. Pray for those who are sick in this body, Lord. I pray for those who are struggling with illness. Pray that you would work in them, Lord, that you would have your way with each one of us as we leave here this morning, that we could be encouraged by your word, that we would know, Lord, that our life lies in your hands and that you are oh so capable of taking good care of that life. We give ourselves afresh to you, Father. Pray that you would just have your way now. And as we go forward from here, that you would be glorified in the lives of your people. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.